Jeremy Renner returns to Paramount Plus for a brand new season of the original hit series, Mayor of Kingstown. My job is to create a balance. Avoid a war. From executive producer Taylor Sheridan, co-creator of Yellowstone. There's some new players in town, and they brought the plague. And Antoine Fuqua, director of Training Day. I know it's always been a war zone, Mike, but this is next level. The mayor is back in business. Are you warning me? You're going to find out. Mayor of Kingstown. New season streaming June 2nd, exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Uh, and Eric, you and I are both avid Simpsonophiles. So I figured you'd be pleased to know, if you didn't already, that Dictionary.com has announced that it is acceding to the inevitable, finally formally recognizing that embiggens noble spirit embiggens the smallest man is indeed a totally cromulent word and merits <laughs> inclusion in their online dictionary and it actually got me wondering you know whether there are any words that have become a part of, of standard boxing uh use that should be similarly recognized trickeration mm-hmm. perhaps among don king's expansive portfolio of malapropisms and manufactured words uh there's Politrix, which I think came from Lennox Lewis. Yeah, I believe so. It was Lennox. Lennox, I should say. (laughs) And I'm sure he's just trolling us all with this whole Lennox nonsense. But um, And then, of course, of course, if you're talking about boxing words, there's a word that is in the dictionary, but not for its correct usage. (laughs) BolivianDictionary.com is far more than a person from Bolivia, as <laughs> right. anyone in boxing will tell you. Uh, there's got to be more. Any other ideas about boxing words that deserve to be uh, more widely recognized? Well, I, I was wondering if you were going to express displeasure that Imbigans made it before Cromulent, but apparently it, it seems like you rolled with that <laughs> relatively uh, relatively well. Uh, but yeah, there, there's lots of boxing words that uh, could be added to the dictionary. Um Along the lines of trickeration and politrix, sort of an intentional made-up word, also from Lennox Lewis, uh, is boxology or boxologist, which is how he described himself later in his career. Um, But then there are some words that are real words, but became new parts of speech thanks to boxing. I'm thinking specifically of spinal as either an exclamation or as a medical condition. You know, much like the word quone, you might need a medical dictionary for that one. Um, And then my favorite. A real word with a new definition, asinine, as a curse word, as coined by Kelly Pavlik when he said, pardon my French, but that's asinine. Uh, <laughs> it was it was like an under the radar interview that, uh, that that we caught and uh, had a lot of fun with back in the ring theory days. Uh, uh, him thinking asinine was a bad word, I guess, because it has ass at the beginning of it. I don't know, but but yeah, if 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 only one new boxing word can get into the dictionary, it has to be lowercase b Bolivian. That's the all timer. It does. It really does. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, we have many words coming up for you on this podcast, most of which do belong in a dictionary. Um, we have not just one guest but two um together at once uh, a very special treat lined up uh and you're really going to enjoy it i think uh, we had a great time doing that um as sad and awful as the recent passing of marvelous marvin hagler was one small silver lining is it they give us an excuse to bring on two of our favorite people to talk about the marvelous one as two of the faces of showbox barry Tompkins and Steve Farhood, both of whom covered Hagler's career, will join us together on the podcast to remember and share stories about the great middleweight champ. Uh, we'll have some fights to preview, including Alexander Povietkin, Dillian White 2, uh, some news to discuss, including an even bigger heavyweight fight, Tyson Fury versus Anthony Joshua, maybe being just about a done deal. Uh, but let's start, shall we, with this week's past uh, in-ring action, where we had four notable televised fight cards, four main events that ended in KOs. Uh, we'll touch on them all. Let's start with probably the biggest fight of the four, uh, the one we spent the most time talking about in advance. Undefeated welterweight Virgil Ortiz stepping up against Maurice Hooker in front of more than 5,500 mostly unmasked fans in Fort Worth, Texas. Yeah, we, we've made our views on masks and overcrowding in Texas known, so I, I think we'll, we'll bite our tongues and focus on the <laughs> fight here. Uh, and, and the good news is it was an entertaining and compelling fight worthy of our focus. The 22-year-old Ortiz started well in rounds one and two, but Hooker seemed to be getting more and more done with each passing round over the first four, and I thought fairly clearly won the fourth. He was marking Ortiz up. 
But then Ortiz hurt him with a body shot in round five, and that reversed the momentum. Another body shot set up a knockdown late in the sixth, and early in round seven, Hooker hurt his right hand while exchanging, took a knee, and was counted out. So Ortiz moves to 17-0 with 17 knockouts. Hooker falls to 27-2-3, 18 KOs. The broadcasters said Ortiz was facing his biggest test to date, which I agree with. And they said he aced it, which I'm not so sure I agree with. He definitely passed it, but aced it seems a little strong. What did you think, Kieran? Impressed overall with Ortiz? Did you see anything that worried you? Or is it just a case of, hey, Hooker is a good veteran fighter. You're going to take some punches. You might lose a round along the way. No reason to be critical of Ortiz here. Uh, yeah, I think I'm somewhat between the, the, the two sort of verdicts there. But I'm, I think I'm a little closer to, to Todd and Sergio and those guys, I think. Um, yeah, look, there are some things that Ortiz will want to look at and work on. He was hit clean a fair few times. Um, like you said, after that strong start, Hooker was sort of coming on a little bit. Um, and he did clearly lose that fourth round, as you said. But... Let's not forget, Hooker was in a terrific fight with Jose Ramirez, who is the consensus number 240 pounder. Right. It was pretty much an even fight until Ramirez kind of pulled away and scored that stoppage. Um, he's not an A-lister Hooker, but he's a man. He's got considerable skill and talent and pedigree. And I think it would have been super notable if he'd had no success at all, really, against Ortiz. I think, you know, I think part, a lot of what we saw was actually to, to Ortiz's credit, I think he knew that Hooker's advantages lay in his reach, mm-hmm. that he'd want to box on the outside. So he set out to negate that. He set out to turn it into a fight. If you do that, you're going to get hit. Um, what was much more notable to me is that the 22-year-old was able to take the more experienced guy and force him to fight his fight, right? Yeah. He forced it, it. It was Ortiz's fight, and he made that happen. Um, yeah, he lost the fourth round. But what was interesting to me, and I think very positive, is that was Hooker's high water mark. Like, it was after that that Ortiz then stepped it up a level. Mm-hmm. And like you said, tur- turned to the body, which you love to see from a young kid. Um pretty much broke him i think in the fifth round i'm not sure that hooker was ever quite the same after that fifth round body shot um never quite able to get his strength back and then turning up a notch again in the sixth forcing the stoppage in the seventh uh, i i don't know i i honestly after several rewatchings i'm still not entirely sure what exactly happened there i I'm, I'm not sure if you are but um but still you know by by that stage it was obvious you know where the fight was going um i think that this outing it underlined what we suspected, right? We we knew that Ortiz is really far more than a prospect. I think what this has done is show us where he is. I think he's a legitimate contender who you would favor at this point against a lot of top 10 welterweights, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. Whether you'd favor him against one of the top two or three welterweights at this moment is a different matter. Um, and it's relevant because afterwards he specifically called out Virgil Ortiz, uh, Terence Crawford, who was in attendance. Um he was asked if he really thinks he's ready to fight arguably the best pound-for-pound fighter in the world, certainly one of them. And he said, I don't care if I'm ready or not. I want that fight, which is an attitude you got to love. But is it the right attitude? Is that too much too soon based on what we saw the other night? Yeah, I, I think even before seeing him against Hooker, mm-hmm. I would have said slow your roll to, to that one. <laughs> uh, Ortiz versus Crawford now would be like Fernando Vargas challenging Felix Trinidad a year and a half before Vargas actually challenged Trinidad. (laughs) I think that's kind of where Ortiz is right now. He's damn good. Um, But, you know, after beating Hooker, he's somewhere around where Vargas was when he beat Yuri Boy Campus, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I think Virgil Ortiz is the goods, but I think think he gets his ass handed to him by Terrence Crawford right now. Uh, It's too soon, and, and Crawford is too... To, to everything for him right yeah. now. Um, I saw a lot of things I liked out of Ortiz against Hooker, especially the commitment to body punching and, and the fearlessness, the willingness to get hit. I, I don't mind that he took a few punches. I, I see it mostly as a good thing that he he's not skittish yeah. about that. Um, but he didn't use the jab nearly enough. Um, and when he started to struggle rounds three and four, he got very undisciplined, uh, particularly yeah. there was one moment when he threw a lead uppercut from too far away that completely missed. I think Terrence Crawford makes him yep. pay if he does that. Yep. Um, so, you know, but but as you said, the, the body punches got him back on track and, and, and he ended up with an excellent result, KO7. And I think that 
stoppage was coming soon, whether Hooker hurt his hand or not. But no, it would be a big mistake to put him in with Crawford in the next 12 months, I'd say. Summer 2022, something like that, maybe. But for now, I think take some in-between steps. I was looking down the welterweight rankings, maybe a Jamal James or someone mm. like uh, maybe maybe someone like Mean Machine uh, who gave Crawford some, some problems. Um, and then I'm thinking maybe if you can get a Jesse Vargas uh, around the end of this year or very beginning of 2022, and you pass that test easily, if you ace that test, to use the, the word they used on the broadcast, I think then you think about Crawford. That's weird. Only one of those fighters that you mentioned as possible alternatives, you mentioned them only by, by their nickname. But why, 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 <laughs> why is that? Uh, I believe... Any particular reason? No, I'm pretty sure. My sources tell me that uh, Mean Machine, he went, he, he, he pulled a Marvelous Marvin. He went <laughs> and he? had his name changed to Mean Machine for my benefit. That was good of him. I think I can do the last name, like Kavalowskis, right? Kavalowskis, yeah. yeah. First yeah, name yeah, not yeah. coming straight to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> and, I, and I agree with you. And and making those comments is not to knock or tease at all. It's a reminder of just how good Terence Crawford is. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget this. Just because we're seeing this kid, and he's clearly very good, and he's you know he's clearly got a tremendous ceiling. Let's not diss Terence Crawford, who has earned his spot and where he is and, and yeah. has turned away a lot of very good challenges. So, and the kid's 22, man, there's yes. no need to screw this up for him. So I, I agree with you there. All right. Uh, also this past Saturday across the pond in London, a, a similar step up situation in the cruiserweight division, undefeated prospect, Lawrence Okoli. Uh, I'm learning the correct pronunciation. It's Okoli, which is just devastating as someone who is enjoying making Okoli Dokoli jokes. Can't, can't make those anymore. <laughs> Uh, anyway, the undefeated Okoli stepped up against former champion Christoph Glavatsky and, like Ortiz, came through with a mid-round stoppage, this one ending in round six. Uh, but it was a more dominant win than Ortiz's, as Okoli used his jab, controlled the distance, barely got hit cleanly, and knocked Glavatsky down and out with a right hand. Definitely the least competitive, least dramatic of the four fights we'll be discussing this week. Were you impressed by Okoli, Kieran? Uh, or, or do we look at Glavatsky's age, 34, long layoff, 21 months, and recent positive COVID test, and say the result had more to do with the knockout E than the knockout er? Well, I was disappointed in Glavatsky, I will say. I, I did expect more from him. I expected him to really give um, Okoli a, a real bit of a test there. But he was a bit slow, wasn't he? And he's ponderous and... The worst part about it was Glavatsky was tremendously predictable. Um, I, I don't know that that has anything to do with an activity. Um, again, we don't know, you know, uh, COVID can have all kinds of impacts mm-hmm. on him. And maybe that was, a, you know, the after effects of that were affecting him. Or maybe it's a sign that he's getting near the end of the road. But you do have to give credit for to, to Oakley for um, he helped make him look ordinary and ponderous, I, th- I thought, you know. Um mm-hmm. Nobody had quite done to him what 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 Okoli did. Uh, what impressed me was that the young guy went in with a plan, like Ortiz did, stuck to it, like Ortiz did, and again forced the more experienced opponent to fight his fight. What was a bit weird was was the way that you know Glavatsky's movement was strange. It's like he kept going forward and 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 sort of telegraphing that he was about to dip to the left and then mm-hmm. dipping to the left, and he never dipped to the right that I could tell. It was always dipping to the left and. If you're up against a even look, if an idiot like me can sit on his couch and see that, then you yeah. know that a combination of Lawrence O'Coley and Shane McGuigan are going to see that. And and you could just tell it was a case of softening him up, keeping him at just the right range, and then waiting for the perfect opportunity to fire a perfectly timed right hand. And that's exactly what he did. Full credit to him for that. Um I'm not sure that Okoli is yet quite as good as Glavatsky made him look, right. but he's good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and he's got good physical uh tools he he's he's uh well schooled um and you look at the cruiserweight situation right now he's only 30 you've got the likes of bradis and Dortikos are are now in their mid 30s there's a bit of an opening there for somebody to sort of emerge and and say that they're the top dog in that division for a couple of years and okoli has at least as good a shot as anyone to to make that his spot right now i think yeah all right. Uh, slightly earlier in the afternoon, our time on Saturday in Moscow, Russia, the light heavyweight champion of the world, Artur Betobiev, returned from a long layoff of his own, 17 months. Got a bit more resistance than we might have expected um, from challenger Adam Dynas, but he was in control just about the entire way. Um, scored two knockdowns. 
uh, en route to Daniels' corner, waving the towel in round 10. Uh, there was some speculation throughout the fight that, you know, it was better BF just looking to get some rounds in. Maybe he was carrying Dynas a little bit. Uh, I, I don't know about that. Uh, his corner seems a little bit anxious about trying to get him going a few times. Mark Ramsey was trying to get him to wake up a bit. Um, don't know, again, if that was a long layoff situation. What do you think? Was was he trying to get the rounds in? Was it a little bit of ring rust? Was it maybe not quite a perfect night for better BF? Or was it all just what you would expect? Yeah, I, it's crazy that this was Better Biav's first fight since becoming the lineal champ against Gvozdik. I, I, right. I was sure he'd had at least one defense since then. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there was some legit ring rust here. Uh, I mean, Better Biav probably also was conscious of the fact that getting a bunch of rounds in was good for him. Uh, and, and, and let's give some credit to Dinas, who was yeah. extremely game, extremely tough, didn't come to lie down. Um, so... Yeah, I would say Better Biev wasn't carrying him. He, he was genuinely shaking off the rust. Uh, not to mention, he had COVID. He had a rib injury. Yeah. There was a lot to shake off, not just the yeah. rust. Um, but I guess I'd say he wasn't necessarily in a hurry to end it either. And he probably didn't mind looking a little extra human because if you're trying to convince Canelo Alvarez to come up and wait and fight you at some point... You don't want to look like a pound for pounder every time out. Uh, right. There might have been the slightest hint of trying to lure Canelo in uh, with this fight. Um, but that's not a realistic fight at the moment. You know, Canelo has other plans. Uh, so so the ESPN crew was talking a lot about him against Joe Smith Jr. Um, and I think that's that's the one that really makes sense, uh, provided, provided Smith gets by Maxim Vlasov in four weeks. Uh, that's just a great matchup. <laughs> it is. Two punchers both at or around their peak, that would be a tremendous summer fight, worthy of a good chunk of that uh, 2021 ESPN budget if they can make that happen. (laughs) Yes, I agree. All right, we've talked about the rest. Let's talk about the best uh, by a modest margin over the action-packed Ortiz-Hooker fight. I'd say the best fight of the week was the Ring City USA main event on Thursday night. Late replacement Angel Fierro coming off the canvas in rounds one and two to score a big upset knockout in round six over former 130-pound champ Alberto Machado in Salinas, Puerto Rico. Fierro was behind 48-45 on all three scorecards before a huge left hand ended it 47 seconds into the sixth. Machado, he's 30 years old. This was his third loss, all of them by knockout. He has some thinking to do. Kieran, is, is this the end for Machado as a serious contender? And uh, how high are you on Fierro, who's only 22 years old and is exactly the sort of boxer that Mexican fight fans tend to love? Yeah, this one made me a little sad because I'm fond of uh, Alberto, not just because he's Miguel's boy, but because he's a super nice kid. And I've always enjoyed interacting with him and interviewing him. But look, I know any right thinking boxing journalists and commentators should want to take the phrase he doesn't like it to the body and set it on fire (laughs) and then bury it in the backyard but gosh poor alberto really doesn't like it to the body does he um uh, andrew cancio stopped him twice with body shots and Mm. piero i mean that's what he's how he softened him up with that just punishing body attack um before finishing off i'm not sure what the future holds for him at this point like you said he is 30 years old so he doesn't have a lot of time to play with um He'll get opportunities still, I think, because of not least because of the Miguel Cotto connection. Um, but those defensive vulnerabilities are are real and substantial. Uh, the best I see for him at this point is sort of a truncated version of a poor man's Jorge Linares career, right? Mm. He might still have one good run in him, but maybe even win another belt and then run into a completely unheralded opponent who just blasts him out of there. It feels... As if that's a little bit of the pattern there on, on, a, on a smaller scale. Um, I'm not equating him to Linares, but that's right. sort of, you know, the, the, the career path there. I'm not sure yet what to think about Fierro. Uh, I mean, by God, he showed plenty of fight, announced himself as a real action fighter. Um, he was, as you mentioned, a late replacement, of course. And it was a little bit concerning that during fight week, Machado and his team outwardly expressed worry about having to f- face a late replacement when they'd trained specifically for Hector Tanajares. And, you know, sometimes just a late replacement can just come in and gum up the works. Mm-hmm. He's, they're, they're just they have nothing to lose. And and the A side fighter is prepared for someone else and just isn't quite ready. And we have a spectacular result. And then that late replacement never quite follows it up when his opponent actually has two months to prepare for him. Um, 
So I don't know. We'll see. I would like to see more of Fierro. After that, I really want to see more of Fierro. Any guy who just keeps bouncing up after getting knocked down and then just comes right at you, works you to the body, all that kind of stuff. That's a fighter I want to see some more. So I, I don't know um, what his potential is, but I do want to watch it and find out. Yeah, it's just so rare that the, the late repla- replacement underdog gets knocked down twice that early in the fight. <laughs> right. and, and it's not a foregone conclusion at that point that, well, the favorite's going to take this thing. So the fact that he showed the spirit to get up from that, work his way back in, and then score the knockout. Yeah, very encouraging sign, even though you're right, we have a lot to learn about Fierro still. Let's go! It's the most all-star studded challenge ever. And this time, it's every competitor for themselves. Best challenge ever! The Challenge All-Stars. New season now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Go to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Terms apply. New CBS Sunday. You collect rewards, right? This is how I make my living. When something is lost, everyone's looking for something. He finds it. You strong swimmer? So-so. So-so. So-so's okay. Justin Hartley stars. How you survive, you make quick, smart decisions. If you never let panic take the wheel. Sounds cool. It is cool, actually. Very cool. Tracker. New Sunday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Yeah. All right. That's our summary of action from today's boxes. Let's turn now to one of the greatest of all time, uh, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, former middleweight champion of the world, died on Saturday the 13th at the age of just 66. Uh, Eric and I were unapologetic about devoting a hefty portion of last week's show to the Marvelous One, and we make no apologies either for returning to the subject this week. Uh, If you are new to boxing, or perhaps you're a younger fan, uh, and so as a consequence maybe don't quite fully grasp why there's been such an outpouring of grief over Hagler's passing, or why we would want to devote a big chunk of two shows to eulogizing him, well, hopefully this next segment will prove illuminating. Uh, Joining us this week are two guests friends and colleagues and hall of famers right alongside marvelous marvin stupendous steve farhood and brilliant barry tompkins uh gentlemen we are unworthy of but grateful for your company thanks so much for joining the podcast great Thank to you be so with much you. um so i i watched a whole lot of marvin Hagler on youtube this week which means i listened to a whole lot of barry tompkins uh but both of which were a delight for the record so let me start with a question for you barry <laughs> When you heard the news of Marvin's death last weekend, I'm sure after the initial shock, the memories came flooding back. What are the memories that stand out, the main moments or fights you think of when you think of Marvin Hagler? You know, I, what came to me first was more about the person than it was what he was as a fighter. Um, because I really, truly, really like this guy, you know, and I think that can be said about a lot of fighters. Steve and I talk about that all the time. I'd rather work with boxers than any other kind of athlete. You ask them a question, they look into your eye. But there was something about Marvin that just kind of said, he was every man, you know, he, he, other than the fact that he could knock every man out, he was still, <laughs> he was every man, you know, and, uh, and I really liked that about him and I admired that about him. And, and I think especially with that long time, all the discussion about Sugar Ray Leonard all the time, it was really yin and yang. I mean, you talk about diverse personalities that couldn't be more apples and oranges. Uh, but I just sort of like, I remember Marvin telling me one time that he and his wife, then wife, Bertha, uh, after a fight, they were going, they were going to rent a motor home and they were going to go all over the country, staying in campgrounds. And to him, that was for all, for any of us, it was probably like, go, well, maybe not, not all of us, but it was like going to Paris for the first time, you know, they were going to these campgrounds all around the country. When he came back, he thought it was the greatest trip he'd ever made in his life. Just kind of pressing the flesh with the peeps and, and more than anything else, more than his skills as a fighter, which I completely appreciate that stood out for me about him more than anything else. Interesting. Yeah. That is true. Every man stuff there for sure. Yeah. Um, so Steve, you are, Showtime's boxing historian, uh, Miss, Mr. Boxopedia, as Mauro calls you. Um, Hagler had, of course, what nowadays is a fairly unusual career in that he fought exclusively at one weight class, middleweight. Um, where do you have him on your all-time middleweight rankings? And, and how much wiggle room is there? Like, what's the reasonable range in which somebody could rank Hagler, do you think? Well, it's, it's a very interesting question, Kieran, because in my day, I started with the middleweights being, the leader being Manzon. And then... Hagler came next as the, the dominant middleweight. And then there was Hopkins, who was dominant for a long time and a difficult out for anybody. Ranking those three, 
I really think it's styles make fights because I think Manzon would have been very, very difficult for Hagler. Mm. I'm not saying Hagler wasn't maybe a better fighter. He probably was. But Manzon would have, in my opinion, Manzon might have edged Hagler in a, in a kind of a boring 15-round fight. Mm. But um, I think all time you have to put Hagler in the top top six anyway with Robinson and maybe LaMotta and certainly Harry Greb. And then, you know, the more recent guys. So I, I think he, he's, he's certainly an all-time great among the middleweights. Mm. you agree with that, Barry? Yeah, I do agree with that. I, I think, and this is really the sad truth, I believe, I, I always thought his legacy would be tainted just because of the Ray Leonard fight, that he would never get his just due as one of the great middleweights. And sadly, I think it's happened for all the wrong reasons. But when we see all the love that's coming forth about this guy after his passing, I think now he will get that kind of credit, but you hate to see it happen this way. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and when I interviewed you for my uh, Leonard Hagler oral history about 10 years ago now, uh, you reminded me uh, that you'd not only done commentary with Ray as a partner, but with Marvin as well, a handful of times, as you said, you, you got to know him. And that's another thing that, you know, we all remember that Ray did a lot of HBO fights uh, and a lot of commentary. We don't remember that Marvin did. Um, what was he like as a broadcast partner? Uh, was there a different side of him, uh, you know, both with the mics on and versus off? No, I think actually the side of him was the side that you see, he, he was every man on the, on the microphone also, which I think you kind of, I mean, who's more every man than Steve Farhood? (laughs) 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 But uh, no, you know what? I mean, unlike a lot of fighters, as we all know, uh, Marvin was a student of the game. He really understood what he was doing out there. You know, it wasn't just go into the ring and beat people up. Like there are, there's a lot of that in boxing, as we all know. (laughs) So no, he could break down a fight. He actually, I would say if he pursued that more, he would have been very good. Now, he wasn't a sparkling personality, but he could break down a fight. And, you know, that's what, as a play-by-play guy, that's what I'm looking for in a color commentator. Right. Um, And Steve, you covered all of Marvin's prime years as a writer and editor for the magazines. How well, if at all, did you get to know him personally? Or was it strictly a, a, a relationship as a journalist covering him? Well, it's interesting. I was looking at his record and I, I covered live about 10 of his fights. I did not cover the Leonard fight and I did not cover the Hearns fight, which is very unfortunate. <laughs> but anyway, um, I never really, unlike Barry, I never really forged a, a real friendship outside of the professional. And I, I, it makes me think of a story. We were at the Felt Forum, you know, for our normal every three week show, club show at the Felt Forum at the Garden. And Marvin was in attendance and he was sitting in the first row. And I handed him a KO magazine and I said, Marvin, there's an article on you in here that we did. I don't know if I wrote it or someone else wrote it. And about five minutes go by and I see that he's reading it. And then, you know, normally when you give someone a magazine, they keep it. Well, he hands it back to me and he just says, he looks at me and he just goes, very bad. (laughs) (laughs) That's all he he said. And I felt like about four foot two. (laughs) I was useless for the rest of the night. So that that's my Marvin Hagler personal story. <laughs> did, did you did you then open the magazine up to say, oh no, wait, what did we write about him? Was it actually a negative piece on him that you forgot? I, 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 there must have been something negative in it. I don't. I think I would have been smart enough not to hand him the article <laughs> if it was a, a rip job. But how right. you rip Marvin Hagler? Right, right, exactly. Right. Just, just, to, just to piggyback on something Barry said, you know, you talked about the outpouring of love for Marvin when he passed away last weekend. Barry used the word every man. I think there's a lesson to be learned, which is that for all the fame and adoration that a Ray Leonard or that an Oscar De La Hoya or that a Muhammad Ali brings, there's room in boxing for the blue collar fighter. And he can be just as beloved as, you know, I think Bernard Hopkins fits that mold too, although Bernard certainly tried to talk a good game, but he was basically a blue collar guy too, came up the hard way. And I think Marvin was very much like that. And the outpouring of love for him shows there's more than one way to cultivate a relationship with the fans. Hmm. Yeah. And that was kind of something that I brought up on last week's podcast was just that he has this uh, this near unanimous approval rating, maybe not throughout his whole career, but by the end of it and and after his career ended, you know, and you mentioned an Oscar or Ray Leonard. There are still people who all these years later will say will say, oh, I hated that guy. He sucks. What, he's overrated. There's none of that with Hagler. I don't hear anyone saying this week, oh, Marvin Hagler was overrated. I never liked him. 
definitely not. And and uh, he's he's also a throwback. Maybe maybe one of the last fighters. You know, he fought sixty seven times as a pro. He mm-hmm. came up the hard way, fighting in Philly against all those tough Russell Peltz promoted fighters in Philly, Bogula Watson, William Monroe. And the other thing about him, how can you not rate him very highly when you think of the fact that he lost one fight convincingly in his entire career, William Monroe, the first fight. Google right. watch from everything I've heard. There's no, there's no film of these fights. You can ask right. Russell Peltz, but there's, there's, there's nothing to suggest Google Watts deserved the decision when he beat Hagler and right. Ray, of course, that's going to be argued forever who, who deserved that fight. I mean, I got more mail at the time of being the editor of the magazines about the decision in that fight than any other fight I ever covered. To this day, that's true. I get asked about that fight to this day. Right. Who really won that fight? Who do you think won that fight? Well, for Uh, the record, I think Ray won it. So do I. (laughs) Okay. I think he stole it. I think he stole it. Yeah. Right. But that's part of the game. <laughs> so I think I think it was actually you that had maybe said to me for when I interviewed you for the oral history, Barry's stole it fair and square, something something yes. like that. You said, yeah, yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and one thing that this is an aside to this whole thing, but after I found out about Marvin, the very first person to call me, very first person was Ray Leonard. Oh wow, really? which hmm. I really found interesting. Wow, hmm. you know, he just said I kind of had to talk to somebody, you know, and uh, you know, and they they. I mean, even in the course of that conversation, Ray made the point that, you know, we never sent each other birthday cards, you know, but I right. think like all fighters, there was that respect. And I think it's, it's, it was there for them too, as bitter as that all was for Marvin. Right. How cool is it and how respectful is it that Barry chose to have a, a, a scenery, a scene of Provincetown, Massachusetts behind him for this Zoom call. <laughs> you see, is that right. what that is? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I wanted to well, remind myself. <laughs> well, as long as we're talking about that fight, I'm going to go a little out of order here. Kieran was going to ask you about a different fight, but the, we'll, we'll let that wait one second because uh, as long as we're talking about the Leonard fight, um, now I know how you guys both scored it. Ha- you know, Hagler was at the end fading uh, as as we know now not at, certainly not at his peak at any previous point in Hagler's career had that fight happened do you think he beats Ray convincingly or were Ray's speed and style always going to be pr- problematic for Marvin Steve I'll, I'll ask you first I think that Ray uh, Marvin is never going to beat Ray easily no matter what era but yes I do think that he beats him mm. any other time both psychologically and physically Marvin was ready for the taking and uh, and that's exactly what happened. He got he got. See, the reason I give him the fight, and I think he deserved it, is because he even outfought Hagler when they traded punches. Everybody said Mar- Ray will have to move and be the boxer and you know uh, avoid confrontation. Well, when when they did when he did flurry, maybe he never hurt Marvin, but he did enough to score points and win those rounds. So I think he beat Marvin in his own game. Right. You agree with that, Barry? That Yeah, I agree with it completely. I mean, you know, we talk about stealing fights, and I've seen it before, not, not in a fight of that caliber. But Ray told me how he was going to fight Marvin, literally, and I'm not exaggerating, a year and a half before the fight. Yeah. And that's exactly what he did. Right. Fight three times around 15 seconds, and you got to fight, absolutely fight the last 15 seconds. Um, the other fight, of course, we have to talk about is the Hearns fight, not least because we have one of the people here who called it. Um yeah. Is that the best fight, Barry, that you've ever called? And how do you, when, when it was happening, how do you process and call that famous opening round? Like normally in a fight, you've got a little bit of time to settle in and get your rhythm going and bam, it was, it was straight up to, to turned up to 11 from the first second there. Uh, so yeah, sort of a two-part question there. Yeah, well, the first part, uh, it's not the greatest fight I ever did, but it was the greatest round I ever did, for sure. No, not even close. And, and the answer to your other part of the question is, I, you know, every broadcaster hopes that you only get so many magic moments, you know, in a career. And, uh, and certainly that was one for me, that round. And you just hope that the right words come out, the right amount of words come out, and even more importantly, less is more, you know. Right. Um, and you never know. You truly don't know, you know. But I think about somewhere a minute, minute and a half into that round, you're thinking, this this round is unbelievable, you know? <laughs> right. And then as it went on, 
Uh, I don't remember what exactly I said, but it was something about that's got to be one of the greatest rounds in boxing history, you know. And uh, so you had that feeling it was building, you know, right from the literally from the opening bell, you know. I, well, you know, the truth was I just hadn't seen anything like that before at any level, you know. Mm. So to have it happen in a fight of that caliber and to have that round be so spectacular, it was almost, it was almost a no brainer. You know, you couldn't go wrong as long as you didn't over talk. At the risk of standing us off on HBO's broadcast of that fight that you did, was that the delayed broadcast? You know, I can't remember. I don't, I always, I want to say it was live, but I could be wrong. Because Al Al Michaels and Al Bernstein called the fight on close circuit, right? Yeah, I, I know. I was thinking, I can't, I really don't remember how that pecking order worked. You know, mm. I know there were times we would repackage stuff in the studio. We'd bring both fighters into the studio and then they would run the fight, run the fight in its entirety and then come back and pick out different rounds, talk to the fighters about it, you know. But I don't remember if that fight was one of those. You know, obviously from my, as I remember, you know, you call a fight like it, like it's going out right now, you know. <laughs> right, right. And I, I don't, I truly, I don't remember who, I know there was a lot of fights where HBO had the live broadcast and ABC had the, the secondary broadcast. But I don't know. I don't remember that one. So, so Barry called the fight live. Al Bernstein called the fight live. All of the Showtime Hall of Famers called the fight live, except, except you, Steve. You didn't even get to go. <laughs> let me let me tell you how I watched it, though. I did this. This will uh, this is a slice of nostalgia. I was home. I lived on 14th Street in Staten Town at the time. And I had about 14 friends over and my friend brought his illegal black box mm. so to pay for the fight. And I do remember that whoever called it, whether it was Barry or Al Michaels, that nobody heard the broadcast anyway, because <laughs> we were just screaming off the top of our heads. Nobody, it was just unbelievable. It was like, you know, and we were all exhausted after the first round. So, wow. so, so was Tommy Hearns. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, at, at the risk of going off on a tangent, I do have. I'd be remiss if I didn't do a follow-up there. If it wasn't the greatest fight you've ever called, can I ask what was? Yeah, prior Aguero. Ah, mm. yeah, okay. Yeah. And that's interesting because yeah. that's my choice too. Oh, In Forty-three okay. years—that's the best fight I ever saw. Okay, wow. Yeah. And Barry and I were not working together, but we were both ringside for that. Yeah, right. Mm. Yeah. All right, we're going to do something a little bit different here. Um, we're going to enlist the two of you to help us with one of our new recurring segments that we've been doing this year, the top five list. So how it works is one of us assigns the other a top five list, and the next week that person comes back with their list. Last week, I tasked Eric with going away and coming up with the top five Marvin Hagler fights non-Four Kings division, right, that you would show to a casual or new fan to show to them just why Marvin Hagler was, was, was just so good, not including, like I said, the Four Kings fights, because even the most casual fan has probably seen, uh, seen them. Um, so Eric's going to quickly reveal his list to all three of us now, and we just really would like to get your reaction. Did he make any bad choices? What did he miss? Whatever your recollections, so on. So uh, Eric, take it away. Okay. Uh, counting down from five to one. Uh, at number five, I have the title win over Alan Minter in 1980. It was stopped on cuts technically, but Hagler was really beating him up in that third round. Uh, at number four, Hagler versus the other Sugar Ray, the rematch with Sugar Ray Seals, uh, who had held him to a draw five years earlier. KO won in the rematch, just an absolute destruction. Uh, at number three, not Hagler's best performance, but the one you might show people other than the Hearns fight to illustrate why he was so popular and what a warrior he was. KO 11, John the Beast Mugabe in 1986, an absolute classic and the fight that kicked off boxing on Showtime, not insignificantly. Uh, number two, I have the rematch with Vito Anafermo, Hagler getting his revenge for that controversial draw, uh, just dominating in every conceivable way, a very good former champion. And at number one, hitting close to home for Steve Farhood, Hagler's second fight with Mustafa Hamshow at Madison Square Garden, a great result against a good fighter, KO3, uh, and the look on Hamshow's face when he went down said it all, uh, kind of a what the hell just hit me look at his face. Um, so, Steve, I I'll start with you. Anything I missed? Any particular memories or stories from any of those fights? I think it's a good list. I, I personally wouldn't put the Mugabe fight in there because I think Marvin was a little diminished at that point. Mm -hmm. It was definitely a very exciting fight, no doubt about that. Um, Minter, you know, it's very hard for any fighter to win a world title on the road. And Marvin did it. Unfortunately, the aftermath was not very pleasant, but 
he did it in a way that just, you know, underlined his dominance. So that, that was very impressive. I agree with you there. A couple of ones I might add. Um, mm-hmm. The second Willie Monroe fight, because again, Marvin had been outboxed by Willie Monroe in their first fight at the Spectrum in Philly. And he fought him a year, less than a year later in Boston this time. And it was a pretty close fight. Willie Monroe says he was ahead. I, I texted Russell Peltz and said, was really Willie Monroe really ahead on the, on the, at the time of the stoppage in the 12th round? Russell didn't know. And if Russell doesn't know, no, nobody knows. <laughs> so, um, but he knocked Willie Monroe out senseless. So I would put that in there. And uh, the Benny Briscoe fight, you know, mm-hmm. to beat Benny in Philadelphia by boxing and showing that side of him. I've always felt that Marvin was a better fighter when fighters came to him. You know, Duran didn't really come to him and he was stumped. And that's why it was right. such a close fight. Mm-hmm. Hearns came to him, made it easy for him. Um, Benny Briscoe only knew one way to fight to come forward. And uh, I think Marvin uh, showed a different side of himself by being able to box, purely box, and win convincingly against one of the greatest fighters of his era to have never won a world title. Right. Hmm. It's funny that you bring up the the second Monroe fight because uh, I, I did uh... – pick the brains of a few of, uh, of our common friends, Bill Detloff, Nigel Collins, make sure I wasn't missing anything. And Nigel specifically said Willie Monroe too. And I just couldn't find it on YouTube. So I didn't put it on my list. I hope it exists somewhere, uh, yeah. but I was unable to find it. Uh, but B- Barry, any, any other fights or any comments on any of those? You fights? know, it's interesting listening to, listening to what you, I had Alan Minter as number one, hmm. uh, just because that was kind of, he finally got the chance. And when mm. he got the chance, he still didn't get his hand raised in victory because of the riots in the ring. Uh, so I thought it was a defining moment for Marvin Hagler, assuming we're not talking about the four kings. Uh, and I also had Vito at the second Vito Renzo Fermo fight. Um, and I had the Mugabe fight. Uh, I agree with Steve, you know, Marvin wasn't the same guy then, and I don't know about Mugabe, but he was undefeated, and he was a guy who had a reputation as a big bomber, and Marvin took care of business and really kind of solidified his position as a middleweight champion, I thought. And oddly enough, the other two that I had were the second fight with William Monroe and the second fight with Boogaloo Watts, Mm -hmm. just because, you know, he avenged both his losses. Yeah, And, And for utter dominance, I just want to throw in the first handshow fight which was in Chicago. Um, Hampshire took, I forget how many, 60 stitches. He also cut Marvin in that fight. But Marvin was totally, totally dominant against a very, very good fighter. When you think of who Hampshire beat in his career, Benitez, Minter, Simpson, mm-hmm. he beat Curtis Parker twice. I mean, Hampshire was le- a legitimate number one contender, and Marvin really just totally toyed with him. Yeah, and it, it, watching a lot of these Hagler fights on YouTube, I, I was struck by how many of these guys got busted up against him that he, he was, right. he was ripping them to shreds, whether it was yeah. ham show or, or Minter and well, I guess Anna Fermo bled against everybody, but um, you know, that seemed a common theme that uh, he would, he would bust them up and he, and he would just wear some of them down so quickly by round three or four. Some of these guys just had nothing left already because of the, the offense and the pressure and, that Hagler. And just think about this. I, I didn't look up the ratings for every fight, but according to what I can get, Marvin fought a top 10 contender in 14 of his last 15 fights. Wow. Who does that today? That's amazing. <laughs> wow. The only one that wasn't was Caveman Lee, who he knocked down one round in Atlantic City. And Caveman Lee was a substitute. Mm. So right. he was excused. <laughs> wow. I saw an interview. Hagler was on the Letterman show right after the Tommy Hearns fight. And he was talking about how that Caveman Lee fight, that's what prompted him to officially change his name to Marvelous right because you could see on the monitor that it was caveman lee but it wasn't marvelous marvin Hagler; it was marvin <laughs> and it like sugar ray leonard was always sugar and he said to somebody on the production team like hey what's the deal and they said oh there's just not enough room to put it all in there you want us to put marvelous marvin Hagler? then go to court and change it so he went to court and changed it which i That's thought great. was <laughs> so are, are either of you guys going to do that after this interview stupendous steve farhood and brilliant barry tompkins officially yeah, after I today i go for caveman actually it's not <laughs> using it's landing those of us who know barry well we, we can't understand the use of that no i have i do have a new nickname i'm gonna i'm in the process of changing it um f you steve farhood <laughs> <laughs> yeah I like uh, yes yes i, I heard, I heard recent, uh, yeah I heard, I heard that on the air it's somewhere kind of a recently name. Yeah, yeah. You and Al kind of in a little club together there. Really, it's a very quickly growing club here. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It is. <laughs> um, while we have you, before before we sort of 
finish here. Um, you, know, you were talking about, you know, all the different ways in which it's possible to appeal to fans. And, and there's a lesson there for, for modern fighters as well. We wanted to just talk uh, about one current fighter. Um, we had Brandon Lee on our podcast uh, just two podcasts ago. We were blown away by what a good interview he is. What a charismatic young man and obviously an intelligent young man. And we all know how good he is in the ring. Um, he seems like the complete package. How high are you guys on him? Is there any danger that we're like falling in love prematurely with a big puncher here? Or do you think he's got a high ceiling here? Well, I, I think Steve would be the guy that would know this more than I. I'm a believer after the last fight, particularly. Um, I don't know that it's going to be a completely smooth road. He's trained by his dad, who has been great for him up to this point. Um, I'm not real sure how far that should go and they've both agreed his dad has told us i'm gonna back away but let me see i'm not completely sold on that obviously you want to see him get hit and see what happens <laughs> right. right but based on everything i've seen so far and as you pointed out karen he's a uh, delightful guy yeah i flew back on the plane with him actually after that last fight and uh he was, uh, he's just a really nice guy to talk with over and above the sport of boxing. Mm. So should he become a champion, obviously will be a great ambassador. Uh, all of that said, let's see what happens when he gets hit. Let's see what happens as to who trains him and who advises him down the road. Yeah, he's, he's 21 years old. There's a lot ahead of him. What separates him from a lot of early knockout specialists is his demeanor. Kieran, you, you sort of alluded to it. This is a very calm kid. He's not seething like a James Kirkland. Right. Um, he's not looking to destroy you right away like a Berlanga. I, I really feel that that helps him. And the power is real. Now, how good is the rest of his game? It's a little early to say, as Barry said. It has, as always, been a real pleasure. I'm really glad we had the chance to do this and the chance to like share memories here with, about an absolutely fantastic fighter. And again, if, there, if we do have listeners who just aren't that familiar with Marvin, I mean, there are a lot of listeners who were born after his last fight. Just check out some videos and you will see, you will marvel. The, the word marvelous was appropriate because uh, he was a guy who had it all. And, and you'll see why so many of us are still so sad at Marvin Hagler's passing. Thank you guys very, very much for joining us. This has been a real delight. Always good Thank to be you, with you guys. Thank you, Eric. Boy, it is great talking to those guys. Uh, I, I mentioned the idea of the near unanimous approval rating. It applies to both Barry Tompkins and Steve yep. Farhood as well. Uh, okay, it is time now for the tweet of the week. And it's my turn to pick it. And I'm keeping us on the same subject, Marvelous Marvin Hagler. This tweet was posted Monday evening by Kevin Cunningham, world-class trainer. Uh, I'd say best known for guiding Corey Spinks, but he's worked with plenty of other fighters, Devin Alexander, Adrian Broner, Erickson Lubin. Anyway, Kevin tweeted, The top fighters of my era got in the ring and fought one another. Nowadays, most top guys in each division talk shit to one another on social media. Then they take a tune-up fight. <laughs> uh, and and then he posted black and white pictures of the four kings in a square, Hagler, Hearns, Leonard, and Duran. It's a bit of a get-off-my-lawn tweet, uh, but, <laughs> but there's also a lot of accuracy to it. Uh, although I saw all sorts of interesting conversation on social media this week about, you know, is it today's fighters or is it today's game? And, and, and by the mm -hmm. way, people conveniently forget that Hagler versus Leonard took about five years to make. Right. Uh, even if the rest of the four kings fights came together fairly quickly, Leonard Hagler percolated just as long as Mayweather Pacquiao. Um, yes. So, Kieran, thoughts on Kevin's tweet or just on the topic of back in my day, nobody ducked anybody, and today everybody ducks everybody? Yeah, I do think the everybody ducks everybody and we don't get the fights we want thing today i think that's completely overplayed I, I don't i think that's that's not necessarily the case at all i think it is more of the game there are so many freaking sanctioning bodies mm -hmm. so many opportunities to call yourself a world champion and and the sport is so siloed which i think is a very important factor as well i mean back then the two Fighters were divided into two camps in the United States, primarily. You were a Don King fighter or you were a Bob Arum fighter. But those two work together to make big fights. Mm -hmm. And now we just have these tremendous silos. You've got Matchroom and DAZN. You've got ESPN. You've got PBC and Showtime and Fox. Uh, so I do think it's more of the game, definitely. And that there is greater opportunity 
for boxers to make money and call themselves world champions. And I think the other factor as well is it's not necessarily a bad thing from the boxers' point of view. If it's not necessarily a good thing for the fans, boxers have learned maybe to put themselves first a little bit. Hmm. Uh, yeah. This might be Floyd Mayweather's legacy to right. some extent. You know, they're like, well, I'll make the fight, but it's got to be just right for me. Um, which makes perfect sense when you're in an incredibly dangerous profession with such a short time span. But yeah, isn't necessarily exactly you know how you want it to be be as a fan. And I think I think I think that's probably the really big difference here. Is is, is the, I think it's the game more than the fight. Most fighters, left to their own devices, will have the fight. I right. think. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think uh, on that specific point that it's. You know, what's going on right now with Terrence Crawford and Errol Spence basically talking trash and not really negotiating in earnest? It's kind of giving the whole sport a bad name at the moment. Uh, yeah. Sort of, you know, you can just point to that one as a nobody fights anybody, uh, but, it, but it isn't really true. But it, in hearing a few mainstream media types reflect on Marvin Hagler in the past week, you know, I, I've heard a lot of the... Uh, you know, there will never be an era like that again, and the, they don't make the fighters like they used to and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, there have been a couple eras right on par with that. It's just boxing is not as mainstream anymore, and they've been smaller fighters than the welterweight to middleweights. But, yeah. you know, in terms of you want four or more elite fighters to come along at once and, and all fight each other or almost all fight each other, Um Ten years from now, I'm going to be telling some young whippersnapper about Barrera, Morales, Pacquiao, and Marquez. Right. You know, that was right up there with the the four kings, except Morales and Marquez didn't fight each other. But there were also three trilogies worked in there. Um, and, you know, another ten years after that, I'll educate some young punk about Chocolatito, Srisiket, Estrada, exactly. and Quadras. Um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and we don't know yet about the, the Four Princes, trademark, Karen Mulvaney. Uh, <laughs> the early signs on them fighting each other aren't great, but it's only really been a couple of months since that whole all that talk started. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like the Four Kings was a special era. It really stands out. But I don't think it was quite as perfect as we remember. And uh, as you said, the guys accused of ducking these days are probably not as bad as we're making them out to be. Um, but I still love Kevin's tweet, especially him capping it with, then they take a tune-up fight. That is that is some yes. good grumpy snark that, there. That, that, that is true. And it was funny, while he was starting the tweet, I was trying to imagine, like, if social media were around in that time, I don't think Marvin Hagler even has a Twitter account back, <laughs> right? Like, no, I he might have a PR guy running one for him. That's that's yeah, as close maybe. as he'd come. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, Tommy might be all over it, but I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the rest, but yeah. All right, uh, let's turn our attention to next week's fight action uh, on Thursday. The third of three Ring City USA cards in Puerto Rico is headlined by one of the top female fighters in the world. Uh, one we don't talk about quite as much as the likes of Clarissa Shields and Katie Taylor, and that's Amanda Serrano, who defends her featherweight belts against Daniela Romina Bermudez. Uh, then on Saturday from Gibraltar, of all places, on the zone, it is the multiple times delayed rematch between Alexander Povetkin and Dillian White. Weird place, Gibraltar, by the way. I'll have to tell you what. It's just very peculiar. Little. It's like the United Kingdom in spain it's just very very strange i'm uh, i'm anyway, not even um, sure if i could have told you where it was on the map but now i know so i guess yeah. it's uh it's, it's spain adjacent it's like huh it is the southernmost tip of spain which due to some weird historical anomaly is british and it's got like british red foam boxes and foam booths and british pubs and I, like when i was when i went there you you drive along this road in spain take a right turn go through customs and you're in England, except that it's like <laughs> 85 degrees. It is weird as hell. But anyway, um, that's what that fight is. Uh, Alexander Povetkin and Dillian White. Uh, White, despite being knocked out by an uppercut in the fifth round of their first fight, is being listed by the sports books as more than a three to one favorite. Uh, Povetkin's 41 years old. He was trailing in the fight until landing that punch. So I suppose it's not surprising he's the underdog. Uh, you are the odds guy. What do you think? Was that first result fluky, or, or is Povetkin being undervalued with these odds? I think those odds are maybe a tiny bit wide, but they're not too far off. Uh, Povetkin was losing the first fight pretty badly until that uppercut <laughs> landed. He'd been down twice in the fourth round, looked just about cooked. There's 
every logical reason to believe this was a case of he had one last good punch in him and he got that one last good win out of it and the cupboard could be bare when the opening bell rings in this rematch. Then again, maybe Dillian White's chin and confidence aren't the same after taking a knockout shot like that. You know, it's possible, although not likely in my view, that he just crumbles if Povetkin starts landing. Um, An interesting wrinkle here is COVID, and we've kind of touched on this with some other fighters already on this show. Uh, You know, Povetkin postponed this rematch because he had it, or he claimed he had it. White posed the conspiracy theory that Povetkin made it up to delay the fight, assuming Povetkin did have it. It's not automatic that you're back at 100% a few months later. We've seen some athletes in some sports struggle a bit post-COVID. So there's a lot of X factors here, but I feel like White should win. The odds, though, are probably just right to discourage me from betting either side of this (laughs) one. Yeah, I, I made a note, too, as well about COVID, that, that Povetkin actually did say, and his people said, that actually he suffered from it pretty badly, that it took him, mm-hmm. you know, we've, we've seen guys, um, Stephen Fulton, he had it and he didn't enjoy it, as he talked to us about, right. but he didn't get a really bad dose. He certainly didn't get it as bad as our, our guy Breadman. Right. Um, but, you know, Berbiev said he, he struggled with it. You know, we talked about him, and Povetkin apparently really did struggle with it. And at 41... Maybe that's that's an important factor there. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think it's fair to make White the favorite. But like you said, White's now going to be acutely aware of the danger of that uppercut coming at him. So, um, I also just wanted to mention again, Amanda Serrano. Uh, mm-hmm. We do talk a lot about Taylor and Shields, and deservedly so. But Serrano is astonishingly good. I mean, she is very, very good. If you were to say to me, she is the number one pound for pound. Uh, I I would have a hard case arguing against you. I would have a case for Clarissa Shields, which I would make, but it would not be a bad case to make uh, for for Amanda Serrano, who is very, very good indeed. All right. Uh, Let's conclude the show with the latest outside the ring news. Uh, And there is no doubt what the boxing news main event is this week, as the fight to settle all debates over heavyweight supremacy is signed. Sort of. Uh, (laughs) Tyson Fury versus Anthony Joshua is on. The contracts are done, but there's a catch. There is no site or date yet. And as Dan Rayfield wrote a few days ago, that is not an insignificant detail. Here's (laughs) what Dan wrote. It's not actually a done deal until they have a site locked in and tens of millions of dollars in a site fee to go with it that the two fighters must sign off on. The promoters have about a month to get it settled given the crowd limitations during the pandemic, whether a site can deliver enough cash to satisfy everyone remains to be seen. So what do you think, Kieran? Should we be excited or is there still room for this whole thing and the reported two fight deal to fall apart? I'm not going to allow myself to get too excited. Mostly because we all know it's going to wind up in Saudi Arabia and that's just going to piss us all off. <laughs> right, um, right. As we discussed the other week, the way things are going in the UK in terms of vaccination there's not a tremendously good reason it appears to not hold it at Wembley, assuming the timing can be worked out with the European soccer championships that are taking place or parts of which are taking place in the summer. Um, and so you would still hope that that happens. Um, but I, I really doubt that it's going to fall through. Like it, it feels like everybody involved wants it. Mm-hmm. The fighters have seemingly agreed the other aspects between themselves. Um, you, you get the sense that if anybody's going to walk away, it'll be Tyson Fury just because he's Tyson Fury, right? right. And you, you can't predict what he's going to do. Uh, but against that, he's, you know, he's not there in isolation. He's got Frank Warren and Bob Arum negotiating on his behalf, and they've been through it all before. Um, they're they're not going to do anything stupid. I mean, everybody knows how huge this fight is and what it means. But, but yeah, that X factor is it, these are unusual times. Um here we go again as we were just talking about these are two guys who you know i think are going to make this fight but they both want to make sure they get as much money for it as possible and if there's Mm -hmm. there's not enough money there then they're not going to do it but somehow i do think this is going to happen both men want it for their legacy both men know that there's money there for it if they can as much money as they're going to make for anybody else uh if they can put it all together uh yeah how and how it's turns out and where it ends up being remains to be seen and i just know we're just going to be really grumpy about it but (laughs) i think it's going to get done somehow or the other yeah i I mean you kept hitting on the word money there and and there's just so much money in this that you know how many how many fights against 
average heavyweight opponents would each of them have to take to equal one fight right. against each other. It's probably four or five fights to, to equate what you're going to make in one night by making this fight happen. So I, I do tend to think that, yep, yeah, I think it's happening. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, we have four items on the news undercard. First, let's stick briefly with the heavyweights. Uh, Matchroom announced a May 1st card headlined by Derek Chisora against Joseph Parker. Although the co-main between Katie Taylor and Natasha Jonas, who met as amateurs in the 2012 Olympics, um, and, and the crowd was so loud for that fight, I've forgotten the exact decibel register, but it was supposedly like four times louder than the rock concert. Mm. And that, so that's arguably the bigger and better fight, those having a pro rematch of their amateur bout at the Olympics. Uh, the full April 10th Showtime Championship boxing card has now been announced. Uh, the main event is a fight we discussed with Redman Edwards a few weeks back. Unbeaten welterweight Jerron Boots Ennis stepping up for his toughest test against Sergei Lipinets. Uh Welterweight in the co-feature as well, I'm going to hope I get this right, Amantis Stanionis against Thomas Dula. Lormi. And in the opener, 115 pounders, Joan Ancahas against Jonathan Rodriguez. Uh, we will be exploring all of those fights over the next couple of podcasts. In other news, a site has been announced for Canelo Alvarez versus Billy Joe Saunders on May 8th. It will be at AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas. Fine, fine venue. <laughs> Configured for 60,000 to 70,000 fans, as that state's governor has lifted all COVID restrictions. Because, you know, fuck it. You know, <laughs> right. why should the fact that we're possibly on the verge of a fourth wave, even as people are being vaccinated in this country, get in anybody's way? I mean, we've all suffered enough. But uh, the final news item this week is one that I know you want to comment on. Um, the WBA, and this is one of those rare times where we actually mention the sanctioning bodies, but it's worth it in this case, uh, has temporarily suspended Judge Carlos Sucre, the judge who scored Estrada Gonzalez 117-111 for Estrada. While the alphabet body evaluates his scoring of the fight. Uh, last week, you said you didn't agree with the scorecard, but you didn't have a big problem with it either. And, and, you know, provided a strong rationale for why that was. So, given your normal enthusiasm for sanctioning bodies uh, <laughs> activities, how do you feel about this particular sanctioning group's action here? So, I like it and I hate it at the same time. <laughs> um, I like it because... I think anytime there's a major outlier scorecard that has people up in arms that strikes a lot of people as downright wrong, it should be standard to examine the fight and the scorecard closely and evaluate the scoring, talk it over with the judge, and not give him or her more assignments until that evaluation is complete. I think that should happen more often. Mm -hmm. I can think of at least three or four recent scorecards that I thought were much further from reality than this one by Sucre, and those judges all should have been temporarily suspended as well, if that's what we're calling it. It's sure. a, it's it's kind of a strong term to to put that suspension on it. I guess you could just say being evaluated. But right, um, I hate this because. Well, I, as I just said, there are worse scorecards than this on a regular basis, and those judges don't get disciplined. And this strikes me as a bad one to single out because, as I said last week, 117-111 for Estrada is a scorecard I can understand. Um, as I said, I saw two rounds out of 12 that Chocolatito won clearly and, and one that Estrada won clearly. If you give eight of the nine close rounds to one fighter because his style is more to your liking, it's not ideal. But it's not unreasonable either. However, uh, examining it more closely, Sucre gave round 12, one of the two clear-cut Chocolatito rounds, yeah. to Estrada. So while I can live with 117-111 on a round-by-round -round basis, I'm not okay with how he got there. If, now, he flips that one round and hands in a 116-112 card, and I would see nothing to complain about whatsoever. You know, close fight, Estrada won it. If you thought Chocolatito won it, well, get over it. This is how it is in a sport with subjective scoring. Um, but Sucre's scorecard is suspect because of that one round. So by all means, suspend him and seek answers. But it's just wildly inconsistent that this alphabet body and all other yes. alphabet bodies routinely ignore more egregious cards. I don't like that Sucre is getting singled out. And while I don't like his 117-111 score... I think the people screaming robbery are more wrong than his scoring is. Um, and, and, and it also bothers me because the WBA now has us and everybody else talking about the scoring instead of the fight. Yes. And especially for outsiders who, who didn't even watch the fight uh, or just heard about it peripherally, they might think 
the controversy is the bigger takeaway than yeah. the amazing battle we saw. You know, to, to some, to a lot of people, in fact, Carlos Sucre soiled a wonderful night for boxing. To the surprise of nobody, the alphabets are finding ways to soil yes. it a little more. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, this is some of the problems I, I sometimes had with, with Teddy Atlas as a commentator in that, yeah, he would, you know, obviously he was always wanting to fight against corruption and, and, and a lot against these sanctioning bodies. But if there were ever a score with which he disagreed, it was a massive, <laughs> massive injustice and corruption. Mm -hmm. And that immediate, and then he'd get on with Stephen A. Smith, and that would be it. That was the story. And if you only watched boxing occasionally on ESPN, there you go. That's what you get. And you you walk away. You don't think about the good fight. That's that's exactly what you what you connect to. Yeah, there are. We've talked about a fair few cards out of the fight sphere mm -hmm. um, that have been pretty dodgy. And the judges there have kept coming back and coming back. Yeah. So I, I, I totally see your point. It is. I agree with your first comment very, very much that it's not necessarily you're not necessarily uh, uh, picking on a judge if you're saying, OK, let's go away and let's examine this. Um, you're just basically making the whole thing more transparent. Uh, and uh, allowing fans and indeed participants to feel that there's sort of a lot more of like an open system and a lot more, uh, you know, you have to be able to stand up and justify your scores a lot more. I, mm -hmm. I do think that should be much more. And it, it, you know, and I think particularly when Mark Ratner was in charge in Nevada, I think Nevada did that quite a lot. Um, yeah, well. I definitely remember hearing about judges, talk, whether it was Nevada or New Jersey or, or, or both, that judges would talk about that. They had to they routinely had to go over their scorecards with the commissioners and, and explain yeah. things a bit and, and talk it through. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, if that's what happens here and I mean, I would love it if like Sucre came out afterwards and said, I stand by my scorecard, except after looking at it more closely, I think I got the 12th round wrong. And so it wouldn't have changed the result, but everyone, anyone can have a bad round. I don't think that makes him a bad judge necessarily. I, I don't know. I'd be curious if we even hear anything about the findings yeah. or if it's just, uh, we're, we're trying to, we're trying to look like we're doing the right thing by saying we're temporarily suspending him and he's going to be right back in another fight in a couple of weeks and they won't even have talked to him. Who, who knows? I don't trust anything that comes out of any alphabet group. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the main, that's the number one. Before even there should be uh, 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 regular reviews of judges' scores, the number one thing is just never believe anything that comes right. out of the mouths of anybody associated. In with fact, you know what, right now, I'm just going to make it official. I'm temporarily suspending the WBA. There you oh, go. What would that that were so. Yes, that will do. <laughs> do can, I not have can, that power? We can suspend them from the podcast. That's for okay. sure. All right. Um, I'm all about that. <laughs> right. That will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Thanks very much again to our guests, Barry Tompkins and Steve Farhood. I absolutely love that segment. Um, we will be back next week to recap Puffyetkin White 2 and to start previewing the April Showtime card. Uh, plus, Eric will have a new top five list to assign to me. Until then, thank you for listening. Be safe. The wait is over. The Shy returns with new episodes on Paramount+. Plus. What brings you to the shed? Opportunity. Everybody get down! Walk right up to the side. A new rain is coming to the south side. Never should have sent a boy to do a woman's job. The Shy. New episodes now streaming. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash The Shy to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with the Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. The subscription auto renews. Restrictions apply.